turning in your Bibles to Genesis 49, and while you're turning there, I have some good news to uh, relate to you, and that is that next Saturday evening, you get to set your clocks back an hour, and um, you can regain the hour of sleep that you've been robbed of for all of these months. So don't forget that next Saturday evening. Um, but it's not as dangerous as it is on the other end. If you don't set your clock back, you'll just show up uh, for church an hour early next Sunday. So, uh, yeah, right. You'll be here for Sunday school. So um, don't worry. You can uh, set your clocks up next Sunday afternoon or back next Sunday afternoon. <laughs> Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we pray that you would help each one of us today to allow the refining fire of your word that is directed by your Holy Spirit to work in our lives today and in our hearts and in our minds. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, we're continuing our study of Israel's final words to his sons. And while this is not an unusual thing for a father to do, what sets Israel's words apart from other fathers is that his words are prophecy. And this prophecy did not come by Israel's will. It came from God. Israel is one of the holy men of God who spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. And he tells his sons in verse 1, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you that which shall befall you in the last days. We noted when we began our study of this chapter that this is the first time that we find the word, words last days in the Bible. And since you and I are living in the last days, Israel's words to his sons have a prophetic message and a personal message for every person in this room, particularly to those who are saved. Galatians 3.29 tells us that if ye be Christ's, then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Israel is speaking to Abraham's physical heirs here. But his words have application to Abraham's spiritual heirs. And that's those who know the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. These words that we are reading in this chapter are part of the things that were written aforetime. That were written for our learning. That were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. In our recent messages, we've looked at Israel's words to his firstborn son, Reuben. This morning, we want to move on in this chapter to look at his words to his second and third born sons, Simeon and Levi. Notice, if you will, verse 5. Israel says, Simeon and Levi are brethren. Instruments of cruelty are in their habitations. O my soul, come not thou into their secret 
unto their assembly, mine honor, be not thou united? For in their anger they slew a man, and in their self-will they dig down a wall. Jacob's words here are very plain. They're very blunt. Even though this man is on his deathbed, and you would think that he would have nothing but kind words to say to his sons in these final moments, there is no attempt on his part to soften his words or to coat them and make them more palatable. Jacob begins by making a statement that is very important. It might seem to be a little re, uh, redundant on the surface to say that Simeon and Levi are brethren. They were. Jacob was their father. Leah was their mother. Yes, they're brethren. But that's not what Jacob is seeking to draw our attention to. He's not seeking to draw our attention to their physical kinship, but he's trying to get us to focus and look at the kinship of their characters. Simeon and Levi were brethren. They were just alike in temperament. Jacob describes them for us here. Simeon and Levi were instruments of cruelty. They were secretive. They were exclusive. They had their own little two-man assembly. They were men of wrath. They were men of fierce anger. They were men who were self-willed. This is what Jacob is talking about, or rather Israel is talking about, when he says Simeon and Levi were brethren. And they're mentioned together. The only ones of Jacob's sons who are mentioned together in this chapter. All the others are mentioned individually. But Simeon and Levi are mentioned together because of an incident that Israel has in mind here on his deathbed. An incident in which they acted in concert with each other. And it's an incident that manifested the character of these two men that Israel is referring to. And I'd like for us to look at this incident. Turn back to Genesis chapter 34, if you will. Genesis chapter 34. And look at verse 1. And Dinah, the daughter of Leah which she bare unto Jacob, went out to see the daughters of the land. The first person mentioned in this chapter is Dinah. Leah bore Jacob six sons. And the final child that she has, that she had, was a daughter, Dinah. We read about her birth in Genesis 30 and verse 21. And when we read about her here, she's probably in her teens. And what we read in verse 1 is that Dinah goes out to see the daughters of the land. This is one of those statements that seems innocent enough. On the surface, it seems quite natural. Here's this teenage girl 
And she lives in a family with 11 brothers. 11 because Benjamin hasn't been born yet. So here's this teenage girl living in a family with 11 boys. And so what she desires is some fellowship, some companionship with girls who are her age. We read that and we don't think too much about it. We may have had some similar experience in our family. But I'd like to suggest to you that it should give us pause. And the reason that it should give us pause is because of what we read in the last verses of chapter 33. Look at verse 18. And Jacob came to Shalem, a city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan when he came from Padan Aram and pitched his tent before the city. And he bought a parcel of a field where he had spread his tent at the hand of the children of Hamor, Shechem's father, for a hundred pieces of silver, of money. And he erected there an altar and called it El Elohi Israel. Now, these verses are very important. And they're important because they give us some insight into Jacob's spiritual condition here. And the words that stand out are the last words of verse 18 that tell us that Jacob pitched his tent before the city. Now when we read these verses, we read that Jacob has three things. He has his tent, he has his altar, but he has them before the city. He had his tent that speaks to us of the pilgrim character of the believer. We've talked about these things before. Those who know the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior are not to be attached to this world. We're to be strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Jacob had his altar. We've talked how that altar speaks to us of the cross of Calvary, where the Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, would fulfill all of the Old Testament sacrifices. And he would shed his blood there as the one sacrifice for sins forever. And so Jacob had these good things, these things that are essential in the Christian life, but he had these things before this city. A city is a dangerous place in the Bible. It's a place of man's order and man's philosophy and man's Way. It's a place of secular humanism. It's what we learn at the first mention of a city back in Genesis chapter 4. We learn there that Cain believed and the philosophy of secular humanism believes that you can build a life. You can build a life. You can build all that go, goes along with it without God. You don't need him. So God, ha- uh, so Jacob has his tent, he has his altar, but he has them in this close proximity to the city of Shalem. I believe that is a very definite picture. It's a picture of a believer who has this mixture in his life. This mixture of the tent and the altar and the city. This mixture of Christianity and worldliness. There's a picture here of a believer who is trying to embrace Christ 
and at the same time embrace the world. And so it's through the lens, I believe, of these last three verses of chapter 33 that we need to view chapter 34. The events of chapter 34 didn't just happen out of the blue. The sin of chapter 34 is the result of a pattern of thought. It's the result of a pattern of life. It's the result of a spiritual philosophy that says that you can have your tent, you can have your altar, and you can have the city. A spiritual philosophy that says you can have Christ and the cross. And at the same time, you can have the world and the pleasures of the world. And the deception that we see here is that Jacob thought it would be okay to pitch his tent and build his altar before the city. And you can almost read his mind, if you will. The the thought process that he might have had that said, well, you know, I'm not like my ancestor Lot. I'm not like him. Lot left his tent and he went and dwelled in Sodom. I'm not doing that. I'm not going into the city of Shalem. I'm just pitching my tent and building my altar before it, a safe distance from it. Folks, there is no safe distance from the world for the believer save death to it. It's the only safe distance from it. Paul said in Galatians 6.14, But God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world. Paul is saying, and this verse is inseparably inseparably related to Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, But Christ liveth in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul's saying he's crucified with Christ. The world is dead unto him. He's dead to the world. What we learn is that death, being dead to self but alive unto God, the only safe distance from the world for the believer. Jacob is alive to the world. And that's the context that we have to view chapter 34 in. So when we read in verse 1 that Dinah, the daughter of Leah, went out to see the daughters of the land, it doesn't matter how innocent. It doesn't matter how normal. It doesn't matter how harmless that might seem. It's none of those things. Because notice something here, and it's very critical. The daughters of the land are not coming out of the city to see Dinah. They're not coming to where she is around the tent and the altar. Dinah is going into the city. She's going to meet the daughters of the land. Dinah is not winning the daughters of the land to the tent and the altar She's not winning the daughters of the land to Christ. The daughters of the land are winning Dinah to the city. They're they're winning Dinah to the way and the philosophy of the city. This is exactly 
what's happening in the overwhelming majority of Christian homes in this country today. Christians have their tent and their altar, but it's spread before the city of this world. And, and, and one day their little Dinah wants to go out and see the daughters of the land. And where does she go to see them? Where does she go to meet them? She goes into the city. She goes to the place where man's way and man's philosophy is taught. The public schools of the city of this world. And, and, and parents comfort themselves. Indeed, they probably justify themselves. But the sad truth is they are deceiving themselves by saying that their little Dinah is a missionary. She's going, uh, she's going to go into the school of the city of this world and she's going to tell the daughters of the land about the tent and the altar and she's going to win them to Christ. But that isn't what happens. Dinah doesn't win the daughters of the land to the tent and the altar. Dinah can't even go into the public schools and talk about the tent and the altar, even if she wanted to. What happens is the daughters of the land win Dinah to the way and the order and the philosophy of the city. The philosophy of the city is so appealing. Be what you want to be. It's okay. No rules, no boundaries, no restrictions. We believe that by nature, you know. Romans chapter 8 and verse 7, the carnal mind is enmity against God. For it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. And so when someone in authority, some, someone that is, is naturally looked up to as being in a position of honor, it used to be at least in this country, um, a teacher, a teacher stands up before the young people of this nation and, and verbalizes and confirms what is already in their hearts, then that confirmation is enough for these young people to believe that what is in their hearts must be right, must be okay. And then what you have is self-energized and self-empowered and self-unleashed. Just, as, just exactly what we see in America today. Genesis 34.1 is an amazing verse. When Jacob tells his physical seed in Genesis 49 and verse 1 that he's going to tell them what shall befall them in the last days, he is at the same time telling the spiritual seed of Abraham what's going to befall them in the last days. And it is. That's one of the reasons that the Spirit of God is taking us back to this incident to show us something of the spiritual condition of the majority of believers in the last days. How they will have their tent and their altar, but they'll have them before the city of this world. And they'll send their daughters and their sons into the city of this world to be exposed to man's philosophy. Folks, this, this is why churches are losing their young people. This is why. 
It's not because some old guy stands up in the pulpit and reads from the King James Bible. That's not why churches are, are losing their young people. They're losing them because in an attempt to keep them and make them feel comfortable, the church is bringing in the city. The church is bringing in the order and the philosophy of this world. It's why fundamental churches are being transitioned. This is what we, we talked about for three or four messages on Sunday night. It's why churches are being transitioned to these new versions of the Bible that add to and take away and change the Word of God. It's why rock music, this deceptively called contemporary Christian music, is being brought into the church to keep their young people, to keep them satisfied. And as a result, this virus of humanism, a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. And this virus of humanism is spreading like a plague in fundamental churches all over this nation. We're talking on, on Sunday night about the Lord's words from John chapter 8, verses 31 and 32. If ye continue in my word, ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. We're not continuing in his word. And this is why. This is why. This first verse of Genesis 34 is not to be read as though something here is, that's happening is perfectly normal. The Spirit of God is waving a flag, a red flag, to cause us to stop and think about what's taking place. And what's taking place is the natural outgrowth of the philosophy of the city of Shalem. Notice in chapter 34, in verse 2, Dinah goes out to see the daughters of the land. But she never got there, interestingly enough. She never got to the daughters of the land. She got to a young man by the name of Shechem. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, prince of the country, saw her, he took her and lay with her and defiled her. He saw Dinah, he took Dinah, he lay with Dinah, he defiled Dinah. He took, he saw, he lay, he defiled. It's philosophy of the city of this world. The philosophy of humanism. No boundaries, no rules, no restrictions, no limitations. If you see something that pleases you and you want it, take it. Now, some of the commentaries that you read refer to what's happening here as a rape. It wasn't a rape. There's a biblical reason why it's not a rape. It's in... 2 Samuel chapter 13. If you want to turn over there, you can. Um, we can't read all of the, the story here. Um, the account is a number of verses, but we do want to just kind of give you a background here. We've talked about this chapter before. It's a very important chapter. In this chapter, Amnon, David's son, loved Tamar, David's daughter. But as you read through this account, you learn that Amnon's love was nothing more than lust. 
What he called love is the same thing that, that people call love today. Nothing more than a desire on his part to satisfy his own lust and fulfill his own desires. And he put the name love on that. Amnon's lust for Tamar was so great that he was sick. Well, he had a friend, a subtle man, the Bible tells us, by the name of Jonadab. And when he finds out why Amnon, Amnon is sick, he comes up with a plan. And the plan is for Amnon to go to bed. He, he's sick. And David will come and see him. And when David comes, ask him what's wrong, then Amnon just says, well, you know, I want my sister Tamar to come and fix me something to eat. That, that'll just make me feel so much better. And so that's what he does. And David sends Tamar. And she comes in. He won't eat. Then he commands all of his servants to, to leave the room. And if you look at verse 11, in verse 11, when she brings him the food, he took hold of her. Notice, first thing, he took hold of her. Come lie with me, my sister. She says in verse 12, do not force me. She says in verse 13, speak unto the king, for he will not withhold me from thee. If you want me to be your wife, Go tell the king. He'll give me you. He'll give you me to you to be your, your wife. Well, here's where we know that Adam doesn't have any interest in love. He's got only interest in lust. Verse 14. Howbeit he would not hearken unto her voice, but being stronger than she, forced her and lay with her. Now, we've come here. Because the Spirit of God has no trouble at all in going to great detail so that you and I understand very plainly that Amnon used his strength to overpower and to force Tamar to lay with him. This was a rape. Well, let's go back to Genesis 34 and verse 2. And when Shechem the son of Hamor, the Hivite, prince of the country, saw her, he took her, and being stronger than she, forced her and lay with her and defiled her. doesn't say that, does it? If that is what happened, the Spirit of God would have told us that that's what happened. He didn't have any problem telling us that in 2 Samuel 13. And the reason he didn't is because Shechem did not have to use his strength to force Dinah to lay with him. Dinah is not innocent. She's not innocent. And that is further borne out by the fact that she doesn't cry for help, even though she is in the city. And we know she's in the city because when Simeon and Levi come to take her out of Shechem's house, that's where she was. With no mention of being held there against her will, nor any mention of her trying to escape, she's there in the city, and she didn't cry out. Dinah was a willing participant in these things. And her willingness begins in verse 1. Dinah's stated purpose was to go out to see the daughters of the land. 
But I would suggest to you that over and above her stated purpose was another underlying purpose. And that was not to just see the daughters of the land, but to see the sons of the land, and one son in particular, and to be seen by him. Parents, God has put this account here in the book to warn us, to wave red flags, and give us some insight into the mind of our teenagers. Sometimes our children, sometimes our grandchildren, they'll say they're going out to see the daughters of the land when the truth is they're going out to be seen by the sons of the land and vice versa. And I hope you won't sit there this morning and say, my little Dinah or my little Shechem would never do anything like that. Because if that's what you're thinking, then you're arguing against God. Two verses that every Christian parent not only need to to, to read, but believe. And believe it not only about themselves, not only about all the other children in the church, but to believe it about their own children. Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And Mark 7, 21 through 23. Mark 7, 21 says, For from within the heart, out of the heart of men, that word men refers to every human being, including our children. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications. Our children have evil thoughts. Fornication is in their hearts. And their heart has these thoughts, these evil thoughts about fornication, and they're having them in the same heart that is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. And that heart is scheming and deceiving to find a way to put their thoughts into action. That's what Dinah's doing here. I want to go out and see the daughters of the land. Do you read anywhere here where she saw one single daughter of the land? No, you don't. That wasn't her purpose. She accomplished her purpose. This is the scheme that Dinah's using here. Going one place for one purpose, the reality is they're going to an entirely different place for another purpose. And I think it's interesting here. Another reason that her purpose all along was to go out to see Shechem. Look at um, verse 19 of chapter 33. And he, Jacob, bought a parcel of a field where he had spread his tent at the hand of the children of Hamor, Shechem's father, for a hundred pieces of silver. I can't help but wonder if Dinah and Shechem did not meet or see each other for the first time in chapter uh, chapter 33 and verse 19. We better never... underestimate the power of a look 
we better never underestimate in the, in the lives of our children, in the lives of our own hearts, our own selves, the power of the lust of the eyes. While we're talking to parents, there's some poor parenting going on here in Genesis chapter 34 and verse 1. Dinah, the daughter of Leah, Leah's only daughter, Jacob's only daughter, Dinah, the daughter of Leah. Maybe there was this special relationship there between mother and daughter. The relationship where Leah might just, you know, overlook, look the other way. Where's Jacob in all this? Where's Jacob? Fathers, don't you give up your responsibility for raising your daughter to your wife. Don't let your wife say, well, you know, she's, she's at this age and she's a, a young lady now and you just need to... To, to move on. Don't you listen to that. You better listen and continue in the word of God. And the word of God in Ephesians 6.1 says, And ye fathers, provoke not ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath. Not just your sons, but your children, your sons and your daughters. And ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them, sons and daughters, bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Where's Jacob? Very instructive that there's no protesting on his part. It's because of his spiritual condition. It's because of the, he's got the tent and the altar and he's got it before the city of Shalem. He's living a spiritual life in a worldly context. So easy for moms and dads to look the other way. Ask some questions. Where are you going? Why are you going? Who's going to be there? Who are the chaperones? We shouldn't be afraid to ask our children questions. Shouldn't be afraid to, to check up on our children. Don't be afraid to go in their room. If you're paying the rent and you're paying the mortgage on the house where their room is, doesn't that include their bedroom? If your children are saying, well, I'm going over here to so-and-so's house, call the other parents. Make sure they're part of the plan. My mama, <laughs> pretty champion at that. Mildred, Charlie said, go call Mrs. So-and-so. See if the old boy's going there or if he's got another plan in mind. My little Dinah, my little Shechem, they might say, well, don't you trust me? Don't you trust me, Mom? Don't you trust me, Dad? You know what the answer to that question is? No! No! I don't even trust myself! God says, he that trusteth in his own heart is a fool. I can't trust my heart because it's deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. So tell me, how can I trust you? 
Young people, listen very carefully. The truth never fears examination. The truth never fears examination. The truth never fears being checked up on or scrutinized or questioned because it'll stand the test. It's lies. It's deception that will never stand the test. Parents say, well, that might embarrass my children. It's okay if they're embarrassed. I'd rather embarrass them than have to go up to Bowles' funeral home and identify them, wouldn't you? There are lessons here. Lessons for Abraham and, and, and Jacob's spiritual seed. That's us. Lessons about what's going to befall us in the last days. Are we listening? Do we believe that this book applies to our children? Jacob's apathy here, Leah's failure. I believe that they are failure to question Dinah. I think it aided and abetted her sin. Made it easy for her to make provision for the flesh. Go where Shechem was. question this morning is, are we willing to take God's side? Are we willing to take God's side and the side of his word against our children? If we are, it means war. It means that you'll be looking many, many times into the face of rebellion. I've told you before, we used to call it the dog face at our house. It means the absence of peace in the home. And, and you know, peace is so much easier than war. It's so much more appealing. It's so much easier to go along with what our children want to do and then let them have their way so there can be peace and harmony in the home. I can come home and uh, never have a bumpy relationship with them and everything will be just fine. No, it won't be just fine. We don't need to accommodate our children's rebellion. If we do that, it helps them to make provision for the flesh. And so the question this morning for parents is, is it going to be peace or war? The Lord Jesus said in Matthew 10, 34, Think not that I am come to send peace on earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword. For I am come to set a man at variance against his father and the daughter against her mother. He's come to put division in the family. And the division in our family needs to be over the word living, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the word written. There's a message here for young people. Maybe you're like Dinah this morning. You live in a home with a tent and an altar, a Calvary Memorial Church, a Calvary Christian school. You may have these outward trappings. You may have the appearance of being a Christian, but your heart is bent toward the city of this world. And every day, you're scheming and working and deceiving to get to the city just as fast as you can. And you think that you're getting away with your lies. You think that you're getting away with your deceptions, but you're not. The Lord knows all about them. All things are naked and open with him whom we have to do. 
And we're going to learn that the end of the sin and rebellion can be exactly what it was here in the relationship of Dinah and Shechem. It ended in death. It ended in destruction. This morning, you need to lay down your rebellion. You need to take God's side against yourself and believe that you are what he says you are and flee to the cross of Calvary and surrender your heart to him and trust him as your Savior. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that Jacob's prophecy, his words there in Genesis 49 are not confined to his sons. It's not confined to these men who lived thousands of years ago. These words are applicable to us and apply directly to us in this hour. We pray that you would help us to see that. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.